Well, tonight we're looking at two chapters in Isaiah 46 and 47. And these two chapters are focused on the nation of Babylon, uh, specifically the fall of Babylon. If you've been with us over the last few weeks in chapters uh, like 41 to 45, you've seen the emphasis on God promising a deliverance for his people and that God would at some point in the future would raise up a deliverer for Israel. And that deliverer has even been mentioned by name. His name is Cyrus. And so Isaiah prophesies the rise of Cyrus the Persian, who will make a decree and allow the Israelite people to go back home to Jerusalem. And so you might think the question might then naturally arise. Well, yeah, that that sounds great. But right now where we stand at the moment, Babylon is our our problem. So when Isaiah is writing, the, the people are yeah, the people are in captivity when they're reading these prophecies of Isaiah. And they're in captivity in Babylon. And the the prophecies that Isaiah is revealing in these chapters seem seem unreal because at the moment they're completely subservient to this powerful nation of Babylon. And from their perspective, it doesn't look like there's any hope. And so Isaiah has been pointing to this rescuer Cyrus from Persia. But then the question is, well, what about Babylon? What's going to happen with them? What, what's God going to do with them? And that's really the focus of these two chapters, 46 and 47. And the, the theological perspective of Isaiah 46 and 47 is that from the human perspective, from a more horizontal, earthly perspective, it's going to look like Cyrus and the Persians were just more powerful than the Babylonians, which is true. But Isaiah is revealing in these chapters that a, on the vertical level, uh, on a larger picture view, that all of that is happening. These world affairs are happening because God is providentially on the throne. And he is able to predict the future. He's able to, to, to say what's going to happen because he's the Lord of history. And in these chapters, his, his deity, his divinity, his power, his godness is going to be contrasted with the nothingness of the gods of Babylon. And, and that's why Babylon's going to fall. Not just because Cyrus in Persia has a great army, but because God is a great God. And God, in his providence, allowed Cyrus in Persia to come on the scene and conquer Babylon, and then allow his people to go home. So he wants, he wants the Israelite people to understand that, that what they see going on in the world has a, has a higher divine hand guiding it. And that's the divine hand in which they need to trust, the hand of the Lord. And so he's going to talk in these two chapters about the fall of Babylon. And the first major section, chapter 46, is God versus Babylon's idols. So God versus Babylon's idols. The first couple of verses of chapter 46 is uh, Babylon's idols are nothing. Babylon's idols are nothing, or we might say worthless. So in verse 1 of Isaiah 46, he says, Bel bows down 
Nebo stoops low. Their idols are born by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. And most likely what Isaiah is referring to here is an annual festival in Babylon. And during this annual festival that lasted about 11 days, they would bring the idols to this kind of like a a gathering of the gods, if you will. And so they would bring their idols to this festival. And Isaiah is pointing to the irony of these idols having to be transported by beasts of burden to, uh, to this place where they're gathering for this festival. And he mentions two of what we might call the, the, the greater gods of Babylon, the ones that were seen to be superior to some of the other gods, Bel and Nebo. Uh, Nebo is in Babylonian mythology. Nebo is Bel's son. And they were gods who were responsible for different areas of Babylonian life and culture. Uh, Bel was the god of power. Nebo was the god of wisdom, the patron god of the scribes, if you will. And so, but what this is showing is that these idols, they're just, they're nothing. They're worthless. They're a burden. He's, he, it's kind of a, a humorous way of putting it. He says, even the animals are burdened down by the uselessness the futility of these gods. It's like the animals are questioning, why do we have to carry these worthless things all of this way to go to this festival? If they're really anything, can't they get there themselves? If they had any life in them at all. And so he's pointing to just the, the ridiculous uh, uh, spectacle that it is that you have to haul these gods there to get them there. And they're just nothing but a burden to the animals and burden for those who have to carry them. In verse 2, he says, They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. It's kind of a... What Isaiah is doing here is he is making a parallel image between slaves and conquered peoples who are taken off into captivity and the gods who are being hauled to this festival. It's like... The gods, like Israel and the people of Judah, when they were taken into Babylon, they were the ones that had to bow down. And they were the ones that were transported to Babylon and hauled there. And what Isaiah is saying is the gods of Babylon are just like that. They're they're having to bow down to the people that made them. They're having to be transported there like captives. They're, They're just completely... Worthless. And so the God, the Babylonian idols are are worthless or nothing. And then in verses three and four, we see God's assurance to Israel. God's assurance to Israel. God's going to speak to the remnant of Judah, and he's going to reassure them of his presence and his power. He says in verse three, Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob. All the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried you since you were born. And we we saw this in the previous chapter where God is pictured as a father, the father of the Israelite people. And here again, he's, he's seen in that role of the father of a young child and God has cared for them. 
taken care of them throughout their history. And so he says, listen to me, you remnant. And the remnant are the survivors, right? The ones who are left after this defeat of Jerusalem. They've gone into captivity. So listen to what the Lord says. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. So basically in verses three and four, Isaiah is looking to the past and God's care for them throughout their history in order to give them hope for the future. So verse three is looking to the past. God as their father has carried them and borne them. Verse four, he will continue to do so on into the future. He will be their rescuer. Then we see in verses five through seven, the futility of all idols everywhere. The futility of all idols anywhere. And here is a direct comparison and contrast between the Lord God of Israel and the gods of Babylon. So verse five, it says, with whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a God and they bow down and they worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. And so we've seen this in previous chapters, this comparison between God and the false gods. But in chapter 46, the focus has narrowed down in on the God, specifically the gods of Babylon. And the gods of Babylon are nothing. They're futile. And God is the only one. And so verse 5 says, who will you compare me to? Any of these gods, Bel, Nebo, any other Babylonian gods, they're nothing. All you, have, all, all you do is you shape them and make them, fashion them out of gold or some other precious metal. You have to put them in their place. You have to stand them there. Sometimes you have to make supports to support them, make sure they stand there and don't fall over. And you can bow down to them and pray to them and cry out to them all that you want, but they're not going to hear you because their ears are lifeless. And they're not going to speak back to you because their mouths are lifeless. It's just something you've made in your own imagination. And so the futility of all idols anywhere, God is the Supreme Lord. And then in verses 8 through 13, we see God's uniqueness. God's uniqueness. The fact that there is no one like him. Verse 8, he says, remember this. Keep it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. These are incredibly important verses. These are some of the clearest verses in all of the Bible that show the relationship between God's 
all-knowingness, his omniscience, and his sovereignty. You ever thought about how is it that God can know the future with absolute certainty? How is it that God can know in detail everything that will happen in his universe? Like at the beginning of verse 10, how is it that God can make known the end from the beginning? You know what that means? It means that when God said, let there be light, and there was light in Genesis 1, God knew how everything was going to wrap up in Revelation 22, verse 21. He had it all planned out. The whole of, of world history, the whole history of the universe, he had it all planned out. He knew the end from the very beginning. How is it that God can do that? How does he know it to that detail? Well, this verse actually tells us it's because of God's purpose. God has a purpose. He has a plan. He says, I will do all that I please. The way that God knows everything, including the future exhaustively, is not because he learned it. God didn't read a book or watch a movie to see what was going to happen in the future. The reason God knows the future is because he planned it. So God is the God who decrees and has a purpose for all that he does from the beginning to the end. That's why he can declare it ahead of time. Verse 11, he says, From the east I summon a bird of prey. From the far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Now, notice the extremes of the, the, deep, the level of detail of God's sovereignty there. On the one hand, he says, From the east I summon a bird of prey. So even as something as inconsequential as we might think is the flight pattern of a predatory bird, a, a hawk, an eagle, God says, I tell it where to go. I call it and it comes. Reminds me of when Jesus says that not one sparrow can fall from the sky without your father in heaven. So even something as little as a bird, the flight of a bird or the falling of a sparrow from the sky, God's will has planned it. But then on the other end of the spectrum, something as big as the moving of a nation and its army under the leadership of a king, God says, I summon him too. So uh, that's what it says, a man to fulfill my purpose. Most commentators believe he's talking about Cyrus there. So he can call a bird to accomplish his purpose. And the bird listens and does what God's sovereignty wants. So also a king of a nation that God can work into his plan and purposes. He says, I will do what I please. Can any human being say that? I, have, I will bring about what I have planned that is what I will do. We can't say that. I mean, we have plans, right? I mean, we can make plans, we, but how many times have your plans been foiled? How many times have your plans been messed up by something that happened that you could not control? That doesn't happen with God. God has plans, but they're never foiled. They're, they're nothing outside of God's control, nothing unforeseen that he doesn't know about. So what he has planned, it will happen. Uh, Proverbs 16.9 talks about the fact that we plan, we purpose, but it's the counsels of the Lord that stand. So 
what he has decreed. That's what's going to happen. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted. You who are now far from my righteousness. And I think that's talking about the people of Israel. Their rebellion, their idolatry, their wickedness is why they're in Babylon in the first place. So listen to me. You're you're far away now. You're stubborn hearted. You're far away from my righteousness. But listen to me. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away. And my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. That's talking about the deliverance of his people in rescuing them from Babylon and bringing them home. And then not only a physical deliverance, but also to renew them spiritually, that they will be God's holy people. So chapter 46 is God versus Babylon's idols. In chapter 47, we have a taunt against Babylon. A taunt. Uh, a taunt is kind of like a, a, a ridicule, you know, making fun of someone. In, in the ancient world, there were many poems, songs that were written in this format, kind of as a taunt. Of, uh, sometimes it will take the form of, of a victor over the loser, a, a taunt. And that's kind of the form it takes here, except God's the victor and Babylon is the loser. And so God, through Isaiah the prophet, is taunting Babylon here, chapter 47. In verses 1 through 4, we see Babylon's shame exposed. Babylon's shame exposed. Chapter 47, verse 1. Go down, sit in the dust, virgin daughter Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, queen city of the Babylonians. No more will you be called tender or delicate. Now, this is, in chapter 47, there's much more poetic imagery with this taunt. So he calls Babylon, and Babylon, we can refer to Babylon as the city, but also Babylon as the empire. So here he's talking about Babylon, the city. That's why he calls it the queen city of the Babylonians. And so Babylon is pictured as like this, pampered, rich, spoiled daughter of a king and who has always had everything that she wanted. But what's going to happen when the Lord brings about what he's going to fulfill for his people is we're going to see this pampered, spoiled, rich daughter, Babylon, sitting in dust and ashes. In other words, going to receive shame and ridicule and, and all of that wealth and splendor and everything that had been handed to her, it's going to be stripped away. So no more, no more uh, everything handed on a silver spoon, on a silver platter, but now defeat and mockery and shame. Take millstones and grind flour. Take off your veil, lift up your skirts, bare your legs and wade through the streams. It's, it's a symbol of shame, isn't it? And the idea here is probably of someone who has been taken. Imagine like one of these, uh, like a princess, someone who has lived their whole life in luxury and wealth and royalty. And then in the blink of an eye, she's taken and turned into a slave. And so instead of having everything handed to her, she's now having to grind at a millstone for her own flour. Uh, she's 
she's no longer dressed in robes of royalty. Now her, her veil is taken off and she's just exposed as, as a commoner. And um, probably the idea of lifting your skirts, bearing your legs, wading through the streams, it's, it's the picture of someone having to, to cross a stream or a river. And so they would lift up their, their garment, their robe, as they would cross it to kind of keep it from getting soaked. And the image probably is also of the idea of slaves being transported from one place to another over a river, going from one land to another. Not, not unlike how the Israelites had to go from the land of Judah to the land of Babylon. And they were slaves, but now the tables are going to be turned on Babylon. Verse 3, your nakedness will be exposed and your shame uncovered. I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. So very harsh language, isn't it? Of, of taking someone who was at the top of the world and bringing them down into the rubbish pile and full of shame. Our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, is his name. He is the Holy One of Israel. And, and that's just kind of an exclamation point in that the Lord is the one who is going to cause this to happen to Babylon. So this shame and defeat and servitude of Babylon is because of the power of the Lord. So Babylon's shame is exposed. And then in verses 5 through 7, we see their rulers deposed. So their rulers, their kings, they're brought down. They're deposed, taken from the throne. Sit in silence, go into darkness, queen city of the Babylonians. No more will you be called queen of kingdoms. I was angry with my people and desecrated my inheritance. I gave them into your hand and you showed them no mercy. Even on the aged, you laid a very heavy yoke. This is God speaking about his people of Judah. In other words, God says, I was angry with my people, the people of Judah. They had rebelled against me. They were, they were wicked. And so I gave them into your hand. God allowed Jerusalem to fall to the Babylonians. But now God is saying of the Babylonians, you showed no mercy on them when you conquered them. Even the weak and the infirm and the aged, you placed a heavy burden on them and treated them with no mercy. You said, I am forever the eternal queen, but you did not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. The idea there is that, and this is true of all of us, is that we look at the present and we look at things, how, how things are going and, and things seem like they're going fine, but we don't know what tomorrow brings, do we? And so Babylon at its height, at its peak of power thought, and this is going to last forever. And we're conquering everybody and all these peoples are just coming under our rule and we're getting all their tribute and taxes and wealth. And Babylonian did, Babylon did not think about the fact that that height of grandeur, that power was only temporary and could be taken away from them just as easily as it was given to them. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. Your power, Babylon, the Lord, the Lord allowed it. The Lord gave it to you for a time, but because of your wickedness and your lack of mercy to your, to your people that you conquered, God's going to strip it of you, and it's going to be gone. And then verses 8 through 15, we see 
in the rest of the chapter, Babylon's bereavement and their judgment disclosed. Babylon's bereavement and judgment disclosed. And so here we see Babylon in mourning because of the loss that is coming, because of their judgment. So in verse 8 it says, Now then listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security, and saying to yourself, I am, and there is none besides me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Again, Isaiah is continuing this um, feminine theme, if you will. He started the chapter referring to Babylon as, O virgin daughter, Babylon. Here he's continuing that imagery and referring to Babylon as a, a rich, pampered queen who will never have to worry about anything. She'll never be a widow without a means of support. She'll, she'll never have miscarriages. Everything's always going to go great for her. She's a, she's a pampered princess. Everything's going to go well. But the Lord through Isaiah is, list, is saying to her, no, that's coming to an end. That's coming to an end. You have been a lover of pleasure. That pleasure is going to be gone. You have thought that you were safe in your security. That security is going to be gone. You said, I am. There's none besides me. Nothing bad is ever going to happen to me. God says, no, you have a rival. One who is more powerful than you. Because I am the Lord of all of history. And your downfall is coming. So he's announcing judgment on a people who thought they were unconquerable. A people who thought they were safe and secure. In what they had. Both of these will overtake you in a moment. Both of these referring to becoming a widow and loss of children. In other words, this disaster, these troubled times, they're going to overtake you in a moment. On a single day, loss of children and widowhood, they will come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells. Here, talking about Babylon and their wise men, their magicians, their sorcerers, their uh, diviners who would try to tell the future, read the stars, their astrologers. And God is saying, in spite of all these things that you have, nothing's going to be able to stop the calamity that's going to come on you. And it's going to come quickly, quickly than you realize in a moment, he says. You have trusted in your wickedness and have said, no one sees me. In other words, no one's going to come and judge me. No one's going to be able to take me over. No one's going to be able to conquer me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. This is the deceptive um, power of, or the deceptiveness of power, isn't it? People who think they're in power, think people who, who get to this point of being either incredibly wealthy or being in very influential positions of power, they think that they're untouchable. They think that they're unconquerable. They think that there's no problem that will come along that they can't fix. Well, why? Because they've kind of been lulled into that sense of security because everything so far in their life, they've been able to handle. Every opportunity, they've been able to conquer it. They've been able to one-up the other person and gain the supremacy. That's why they've risen to this place of wealth or of power. But that doesn't mean you know what's happening tomorrow. And that's where Babylon was. Babylon had such... um, success in everything it did. No one really stood in their way. And so they thought nothing's ever going to happen, but it was all about to come crashing to an end. 
Disaster will come upon you and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with a ransom. No bribes. You can't pay anybody to keep this from coming. A catastrophe you cannot foresee will suddenly come upon you. And there's kind of a little dig at the Babylonians' wise men and their astrologers and their diviners, people who thought they could read the stars and see what was going to happen. God says, you're not going to be able to foresee this. This is coming out of nowhere, and you're not going to be able to stop it. Keep on then with your magic spells and with your many sorceries, which you have labored at since childhood. Perhaps you will succeed. Perhaps you will cause terror. All the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from what is coming upon you. Again, it's a taunt, isn't it? That they're not going to be able to save you. They're not even going to know what's coming. Surely they are like stubble, just burned up. The fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. These are not coals for warmth. This is not a fire to sit by. That is all that they are to you. These you have dealt with and labored with since childhood. All of them go on in their error. There is not one that can save you. That's the, that's the last statement of God through Isaiah to Babylon. None can save you. The Lord's judgment is coming. Now, remember, who's reading this? Who's reading Isaiah 46 and 47? It's written for the Lord's people, isn't it? So even though this is addressed, kind of direct address to Babylon and its gods, really it's the people of Israel, the people of Judah who are reading this and are profiting from it. They're the ones who are gaining hope and encouragement by this word of the Lord and judgment against their oppressor. Wouldn't that be an encouragement to you? If at that very moment you were in slavery, you were in submission to a Babylonian power that had showed you no mercy, very much like the time that Israel was in Egypt with their oppressors. Wouldn't it be so encouraging and so hopeful to read something like this and see that one day, not too far off in the future, your oppressor is going to be brought down to nothing and God is going to rescue you. It was meant to be an encouragement of hope for the Lord's people. So how can we apply this? What are some things that we can take away from these two chapters? One, I think clearly is like the main point of these two chapters is the uniqueness and the power and the majesty of God. There's no one like him. There is no other. He has no rivals, no equals. He is the one who predicts the future. He is the one who plans the future. He is the one who brings all things into existence. And he is the one who can guarantee the, the freedom and the security of his people. The Lord, the majesty and power, the uniqueness of the Lord. I think another thing that, that this, these two chapters teach us is just a reminder to hope and trust even when the circumstances at the moment don't lend themselves to hope and trust. And we're very susceptible to this, aren't we? That, that when things aren't going well, when things seem to be piling up against us, when, when circumstances are not what we would want, we tend to get down. We tend to get discouraged. 
we can be kind of a, a glass half empty kind of look at it. But this is reminding us that even at times when things are not going well, and from the perspective of the people of Judah at that time, things were not going well. But they were still called to hope. They were still called to trust because their God was still on the throne and he was mightily at work. He was, he was, he was in the kitchen, if you will, cooking things up. He was getting things ready. He was preparing things. They just needed to wait and be patient and be hopeful for his salvation that was coming. And I think also, too, there's some lessons in, in here for us from uh, God's words of judgment to the Babylonians. In, in a lot of what he said to the Babylonians, it reminds me of modern-day America. In that we, modern-day America, we feel safe in our wealth. We feel safe in our success. We feel safe in our security, military might, whatever it is. We're a world power. And our, our life is full of luxury and comfort. Now, I realize that there are people who are in, going through very difficult times in our nation but on the whole, especially when you compare our nation to the rest of the world, we have it pretty easy. A lot of luxury, a lot of, a lot of not having to do a whole lot of you know, hard labor to keep yourself alive day after day. And it makes me think that you know, in our country, and as Christians we can fall into this too, is that we can put our security in the wrong place. And we can put our security in our bank account or in our 401k, or we can put our security in our abilities, what our talents, what we can do. Uh, we put our, our security in just the comforts, the technologies that we have available to us that can do so much for us. But those things can all let us down. Those things can all fail you. And the only thing that is stable, the only thing that is a rock that you can stand on is the Lord. And so I think there's, a, there's some good reminders in there for us, too, in God's words of judgment to the Babylonians. Uh, don't, don't be lifted up in pride thinking, hey, everything's going well today. It's going to keep on going well tomorrow because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So uh, live in humility before the Lord and let your ultimate trust and hope be in him, not in the things that this world can, can provide you.